First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. church if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13? I'm so thankful that you are here on this special day, this first day of Holy Week. And this Friday is, of course, Good Friday, the day that we remember that our Lord Jesus did pay it all for us. And we're going to think about His sacrifice today, even as we study this passage from Samuel and and later in our service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together and, and think more about His cross. Uh, and then I almost cannot wait for next weekend as we gather together for Easter to celebrate our risen Savior and to talk about the hope that we have because that tomb is empty. Uh, the series that we are in right now in this part of the book of Samuel is called Have It Your Way. Uh, Because God, as He sometimes does in our own lives, let Israel have it their way. He let them have the king that they so badly wanted, even though He had warned them through the prophet Samuel that uh, it was not going to turn out the way that they were hoping. But up until this point in King Saul's reign, uh, it had been so far so good. In chapter 11, uh, King Saul won a great victory for the people, and at this point, uh, it seems that all the people were happy with their new king. But here, in our text for the day, in chapter 13, some of the character issues that we saw uh, popping up in Saul's life earlier on now uh, come to a head. And here, King Saul sins against the Lord, and really this chapter marks the beginning of the downfall for the first king of God's people. And uh, today, as we just honor the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me as we read uh, our text, 1 Samuel 13? If you don't have uh, a Bible, the words will be on the screens behind me. 1 Samuel 13 says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits, And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time 
set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. And therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about six hundred men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with him remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Oprah, the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road of Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road that's on the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Father, we do thank you for your word today. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would drive this word deeply into our hearts, that we might see our King Jesus, that we might see the one who died for us and rose again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's start today by walking through this story together, and then we will talk about some of the things that we really need to see in this story that apply to our lives today. Uh, in verse 1, we see uh, some very common phrases that show up again and again in the books of Chronicles and the books of Kings uh, when uh, the Bible speaks about a king's reign. Very often you will read, uh, such and such a king reigned for this number of years, and after this number of years, this event happened in the king's life. And that's what we're reading in verse 1, but as John MacArthur has noted, uh, it seems that in this instance, the number of years was not preserved for us in uh, the Hebrew text. And what we do know from the book of Acts uh, is that King Saul reigned 40 years altogether. Uh, we also know from verse 2 that this event happened long enough into Saul's reign that his son Jonathan was now old enough to be a commander in his father's army. So evidently some time uh, had passed in King Saul's reign. Verse 2 tells us that Saul's standing army, if you will, uh, was comprised of 3,000 troops. Uh, 2,000 were stationed with Saul himself 
and a thousand were stationed at the command of his son Jonathan. Uh, But all the other fighting men of Israel, King Saul sent back home. Uh, And they were just waiting uh, to be summoned uh, if they should ever be needed. And they were going to be needed very soon. Uh, Because in verse 3, we read that Jonathan, the king's son, attacks uh, this little outpost that the Philistines had, the enemies of God's people. And uh, he attacks them. And of course, when the Philistines found out about that, they were none too pleased. And they decided to uh, take things up a notch and to uh, basically launch an all-out war against Israel. And so Saul uh, blows the trumpet. He summons his army, and his army came. Uh, But the Philistines came also, and they came with more people, and they came with more weapons. Verse 5 says, The Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. Uh, Now, some of the early manuscripts read 3,000 chariots there rather than 30,000. I think that 3,000 is most likely the correct number based on the number of horsemen, the number of charioteers that is listed here. But still, this is a a formidable army. And in Israel's eyes, it appeared that they were as the sand uh, that covers the seashore. That's how they felt uh, when they looked out at this army that was gathered against them. And verses 6 and 7 says that the people were scared to death. Uh, that some of them uh, were hiding in any hole or pit uh, that they could find. Uh, Some of them were so scared they left the battlefield altogether. They crossed over the Jordan River and went to hide out in the lands that were east of the Jordan. And then those who remained there with King Saul in his camp, that group was getting smaller and smaller by the day, and they were petrified. End of verse 7, it says, As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him Tremble. They were trembling. They were literally quaking in fear. And then verse 8 tells us this. Saul waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered or were scattering from him. Uh, really, uh, this verse goes back to something that Samuel had said to Saul uh, years earlier, back on the day of Saul's anointing. We read about it in chapter 10. Uh, Verse 8, look at these words uh, with me. Uh, Samuel said to Saul, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. Now, whether this uh, command back in chapter 10 is the one that Saul was meant to obey in chapter 13, or uh, whether Samuel said something very similar to this, uh, closer to the actual event, we do not know. But what is evident is that Samuel said something very much like this to Saul, that he was to wait seven days in this particular city, the city of Gilgal, that he was to wait for Samuel to come, that he was to wait for the Lord's instruction for him before he went out into battle. But Uh, seven days have come and gone, or perhaps, as I believe, it was into the seventh day, and King Saul uh, was getting impatient. And uh, Samuel is not there, and he feels that he needs to do something. And so in verse 9, he takes matters into his own hands. Verse 9, it says, Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. 
Now, we may read that and not uh, immediately uh, understand why that is such a big deal. But offering sacrifices was not the job of the king. It was the job of the priest. And besides that, Saul had been instructed by Samuel to wait for Samuel, to wait for the prophet of the Lord. But instead of waiting on the Lord, King Saul was taking matters into his own hands and he was acting instead of trusting in God. And of course, no sooner had he finished his offering than who shows up but Samuel. You can almost hear the dun-dun-dun as Samuel walks in right after Saul has finished doing this. Look at verse 10. It said, now it happened as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And I love this. Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him, right? He's running out to to Samuel. Good to see you, friend. I'm so thankful that you're here. He's pretending nothing has happened, nothing to see here. But Samuel is not excited to see Saul because he knows what Saul has done. Now, it's true in verse 11, he asked him that question, what have you done? But you almost get the impression that like God asked Adam in the Garden of Eden, what have you done? Uh, God already knew what Adam had done, and you get the same feeling here. Samuel already knew what Saul had done. And so immediately, Saul, who knows what he did was wrong, begins to make excuses, begins to blame everybody in the world, and, and we'll come back to that in just a moment, but Samuel will have none of it. And there in verses 13 and 14, Samuel lowers the boom and tells Saul what the Lord thought about what he had just done. He said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now God was not saying here that Saul's personal reign ended at this moment. He said something Closer to that in chapter 15, just a couple chapters later, but here, God is clearly saying that there would not be a dynasty that would come from King Saul's lineage. His son Jonathan, the heir apparent up until that point, would now not be the king, nor would Saul's grandchildren or great-grandchildren be the king. That prospect had now departed because Saul was not obedient. And the Lord said, I've already gone. I've already found someone who is a man after my own heart, someone from a different family, someone from a different tribe, the tribe of Judah. The shepherd boy will meet in a few chapters named David, and he will be the commander of my people in the place of you. And in verse 15, Samuel gets up and he leaves Saul there at the battlefield. And it's even Samuel's departure is almost a a picture of this break that happens between these two men. And Saul is now left alone without the Lord's prophet, without the Lord's word, to carry on this battle on his own. And the final part of verses 16 through 23 sets up the battle that we will read next time when we come back to Samuel the week after Easter in chapter 14. Uh, But suffice it to say, the prospects for the people of God, uh, at least from outward appearances, was not good. Uh, There were only 600 soldiers left in King Saul's army. Everybody else had, had scattered. 
The, the Philistines had sent out three different raiding parties all over the land in different directions. And to make matters worse, it seems that the Philistines had a monopoly on all of the iron workers and blacksmiths in the region. And the Israelites were apparently still living in the Bronze Age. And they had to go over to the Philistines even when they wanted to get their farming tools to, to be sharpened. And of course, that gave the Philistines a great advantage in the battle because they had spears and swords, and other than King Saul and his son Jonathan, the Israelites did not. So the Israelites were outmanned and they were outgunned. On their own, this, they were helpless to defeat the Philistines. They were helpless, but as one has said, they were not hopeless. Because the Lord was going to fight for his people. And again, we're going to see this next time. That when the Lord fights our battles, how many people and how many weapons the enemy has is totally irrelevant. Well, that is the story. But what does this story in chapter 13 mean for us today? I think it has a lot to say to us. And really, there are two people, two people that we need to see in this story. First of all, we need to see ourselves in this story. And we need to see ourselves particularly in the character of King Saul and the choices that King Saul makes in this story. You know, I think on one level we can sympathize uh, with King Saul. I mean, put yourself in, in his position. And what it would have been like to be at Gilgal, to be on the battlefield during that seven-day period where he is waiting for Samuel to come, where just a mile or two away, this Philistine army has gathered against you. They have more people. They have more weapons than you do. And every single day, your people who are petrified are running away. I mean, they are scattering from you like the cockroaches did in my dorm room in college every time I turned on the light. I mean, they're just running away, and he is left with fewer and fewer people every day. He's probably thinking, by the time this battle gets here, I'm going to be the only one here left to fight the Philistines. And everybody is looking to him. He's the king. He's the one that they anointed for situations just like this one to, to lead them out into battle. And everybody's looking at him. Can you imagine the pressure that King Saul felt on the battlefield? Everybody was saying, Saul, what are we going to do? What are you going to do, Saul, about this? And then to add to all of that, where is Samuel? Right? Samuel said he was going to come. He said he was going to come within seven days. And I believe the seventh day had arrived and Samuel was still AWOL. And so Saul says, well, I just, I just have to do this. And so he, he said, bring the offering to me. And he makes this offering because he believes if he makes the offering, then God would be favorable to them when they went out into battle. He felt that it's what he had to do. In verse 12, that's what he says to Samuel. He said, I felt compelled to do it. He felt like he had no other choice. It was the only thing that made sense to Saul to do in that moment. And you know, I think a lot of times we're like King Saul in that. We sometimes do what makes sense to us instead of what God has told us. We do the things that make sense to us instead of what God has told us. And you know what Samuel said to Saul afterwards was true. He was being foolish because it really did not matter what made sense to Saul. And it really did not matter what he felt like he had to do. All that mattered is what God had told him to do. And King Saul had decided to do something else. 
He had decided to do what made sense to him instead of what the Lord clearly told him to do. And again, we're not all that different from Saul. There's a lot of times, I believe, in our life where we don't think first about what God has said. Instead, we think about what makes sense to us and what seems prudent to us and what seems wise and what we think other people will do if they were in that situation and, and what we need to do. And all the while, God's Word is clearly saying, that doesn't honor me. That, that's not right. That's what I've told you not to do, I'm not going to bless that. But we have a way of just kind of tuning that out sometimes when we have already decided in our will and in our heart the direction that we're going to go. And in that moment, what we think matters more to us than what God has said. And church, this is when we need to remember those simple, familiar words from Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we do lean on our own understanding, and we're more like Saul than we like to admit. And then to make matters worse, we're like Saul in another way also. We're like Saul in that we tend to make excuses and to blame everybody else for our sin. That's definitely what Saul does here. When Samuel comes to him and says, Saul, what have you done? Uh, he just goes into a full-blown excuse fest, right? He blames everybody that he can think of. And, and look at it there with me in verse 11. Uh, Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, now hold your finger right, right there. So who's he blaming first? He's blaming his soldiers, right? He's saying, when I saw that they left me, that all my soldiers were deserting me, so they're the ones to blame. And next he says, and that you, Samuel, didn't come within the days appointed. Who's he blaming next, right? He's blaming Samuel because he wasn't punctual, because he didn't get there when Saul thought he should have. So you're to blame Samuel. Then next he says, and when I saw that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, so they're to blame. They're the ones who are trying to start this all-out war. And so he goes on to say, because of all these things that I saw, I mean, I did what I had to do. And so Samuel, you understand, right? I mean, I'm the innocent one here. I'm the innocent one in all of this. It's because of what these people did. It's because of what you did. It's because of what they did that put me in this situation where I did what I had to do. He was just making excuses, though, when you strip it all away. And deep down in his heart, he knew it. He knew that he had not obeyed the Lord, and he was just trying to get himself off the hook. And we're really good at doing that, too. We do it in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of situations. You know, when it comes to divorce, we say, well, you know, I, I just I had to divorce her. I mean, you know, nobody could live with her. I mean, she's cray-cray. You know, she is just, she is bonkers. I mean, nobody could put up with that for a lifetime. Nobody could put up with her. Nobody could put up with him. When it comes to our kids, we say, well, you know, I, I just, I had to unload on them every now and then just to remind them, you know, of who's in charge. Because, you know, my kids are crazy, and I, I know I shouldn't be irritable, and I know I shouldn't be angry, and I know I shouldn't lose my temper, but nobody would be able to take it if they had these kids. When it comes to our taxes, we say, well, I, I know that I probably should have written that down, but the government, you know, they take too much of our money anyway. And the way I figure it, this really belongs to me, and what they don't know won't hurt them, right? 
And we do that with these issues that I've named and a hundred other issues. We're really, really good at making excuses, at blaming situations and circumstances and what other people have done for the fact that we have done something that clearly God condemns in his word. And we are all, all guilty of that. Now listen, is, is there grace with the Lord? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. I'm going to talk more about that later, but I definitely want you to hear that today, that there is no sin that we have committed or ever could that the blood of Christ cannot cover. And if you're a Christian today and you know Christ as your Savior, that means that He already has forgiven you of every sin you have ever committed or ever sin, every sin that you ever would commit or ever will commit. That is the beauty of the gospel. But with that said, I do need us to hear this truth today as well. Just because the Lord has forgiven us eternally in Christ does not mean that there will not be consequences in this life if we disobey him. And it also does not mean that we might very well be forfeiting rewards that the Lord wants to give to us on that day when we stand before him because of the sins that we are committing in this day. And really, that's what Samuel says to King Saul. You know, I, I honestly think the saddest words in this whole chapter are right there at the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 when Samuel says this, For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. You know, this is a little bit of of an aside, but it's just kind of mind-blowing to think about this. You know, when we talk about the Lord being omniscient, the Lord knowing all things, that actually means more than that the Lord knows everything that has happened and everything that will happen. When we say that the Lord is all-knowing, that He's omniscient, you know, that also means that the Lord knows everything that would have happened if other things did happen, right? The Lord knows all the possibilities. He knows all the things that could have happened or would have happened or would have been triggered if other things had happened. That famous movie that many of us watch uh, at Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life, kind of explores that idea a little bit. Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, uh, gets to see in that movie what would have happened if he had gotten his wish, and if he had never existed. He gets to have his eyes opened as the story goes on there of how things would not have been as good in Bedford Falls had he never been born. That's kind of what God is doing here. He's telling Saul some would-haves. And what he's saying to Saul is, I would have done something amazing in your life if you had obeyed me, but now... I cannot. I would have made you king forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And friend, hear me. We are like Saul in this also because, listen, there are things the Lord would do in our life that he won't do if we don't obey. Do you know that every Christian is not used in the kingdom of God to the same extent? That's just a reality. 
Every Christian is loved by God. Every Christian is saved by Christ. Every Christian is not used to the same extent in the kingdom of God. And to a large degree, that's because every Christian is not equally obedient to the Lord. The same thing is true in our lives that was true for King Saul. There are things that the Lord would do in our lives that he won't do and can't do if we will not be obedient to his voice. And friend, can I, just, can I just tell you something? I don't want to get before the Lord one day and stand before him and have him look at me and say, Scott, you know, I would have done this with your life. Or I would have done that with your life, Scott, but I couldn't. Because you wouldn't listen to my voice. And you say, well, can that happen to us? It absolutely can happen to us. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a passage there that we read about what judgment is going to be like for believers. I don't know if you've thought about that. What is it going to be like for believers to stand before Christ? 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that. And it says that we're all building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but we're building with different materials. And it says that if we have built on that foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, then when the works of our life are tested by the fiery eyes of Christ on that judgment day, that if we have built things with gold and silver and precious stones, that it will last and that the Lord will reward us for those things that we have done from the right heart for his glory. But that passage also says that if we have built in our life things that are made out of wood and hay and stubble, that the fire of Christ will burn those things up and that there'll be nothing left. In fact, look at this verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 15. It says this, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What, what does that mean? It means that there are some Christians who will get to heaven almost as if their backs have been singed with the fires of hell. And after the eyes of Christ have tested everything that they have done in their life, that there will be some that everything that they have done in their life will burn up in front of them and they will literally have nothing to show for a lifetime of following Christ but their salvation alone. Is that not a scary prospect to any of us in this room? That that could be a reality, to have nothing to show. Now, was that God's perfect will for that brother or that sister? Absolutely not. Ephesians 2.10 says that he has created us for good works. He has prepared them beforehand that we would walk in them. He has things that he wanted those brothers and those sisters to do that they would have done, that they could have done, but they didn't choose to obey the Lord. Friends, let's not let that be true in our lives. Let's say to the Lord the same thing that Samuel said to the Lord when he was a boy. Here I am. God, use me. Use my life to the fullest extent possible. God, set my life on fire and burn me up for you. Let me pour my life out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of the faith of other people. God, let me get to the end of my life with no regrets of things that would have happened or could have happened that didn't happen because I was consumed with lesser things than the glory of God. And we need to see ourselves in this story and we need to to take the things we see to heart. But much more important than seeing ourselves in this story is seeing Jesus in this story. Because every story in the Bible was meant to point us 
to Jesus. He's the only one who can save sinners like Saul and sinners like you and sinners like me. You know, the most well-known phrase from 1 Samuel 13 is there in verse 14 when Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. A man after his own heart. And we know that in the near term that that was referring to David. And it means several things, I think, that phrase. It means that David had a heart for God. It means he had a heart like God. It also means that David was in the heart of God. That David was the one that God had chosen to be the king for his people. And so we trace that phrase, a man after his own heart, to King David. But we don't need to stop tracing there. We need to keep on tracing. Centuries later, until a son of David was born in Bethlehem and the shepherds came to worship him. Because ultimately, Jesus is the man after God's own heart. Jesus is the only one who always had a heart like the Father, a heart to please the Father. That's why John 8, 29 says, Jesus said, I always do those things that pleases the Father. And that's good news for us, church. Because Jesus always does those things that please the Father, because the Father is pleased with Jesus, if Jesus lives in you, the Father is pleased with you. He's not pleased with you because of what you have done. He's pleased with you because of what Jesus has done. Because he is the man after God's own heart. Here's another place we see Jesus in this story. Jesus is the only one who passed every test and always obeyed the Father, as we just said. It's plain to see that King Saul was being tested in this passage. He was being tested in that seven-day period when Samuel didn't come. And he failed the test. Just like Adam failed the test in the garden of Eden. But the second Adam, the greater Saul, would also be tested in a garden. And it happened during Holy Week. It happened on Thursday night in a garden called Gethsemane. And just like Saul was under so much pressure on the battlefield that day, Jesus was in far more pressure that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. So much pressure that the Scriptures tell us he was sweating drops of blood because of what he knew he would experience the next day when the weight of our sins was laid on him. And yet Jesus passed the test. And he said, Father, not what I will, but what what you will. And if it's your will, I will drink this cup down to the very bottom. And he went to the cross. He is the king that we were waiting for, the king that passed every test, the king who always obeyed the Father. And then finally, we can see Jesus in this story because Jesus is the right one to make the sacrifice. The reason that Saul got into trouble was because he was the wrong one to make the sacrifice. He was the king, but he wasn't the priest. And it wasn't his job to make the sacrifice. It was Samuel's job, the priest of God and the prophet of God. But you know, Jesus is the king and the priest and the prophet, is he not? And he was the right one to make the sacrifice. In fact, he was the only one who could make the sacrifice. Because the sacrifice that was needed to take away our sins was Jesus himself. He was the right one to make the sacrifice, and he did on that first Good Friday, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And because he made that sacrifice, you and I can be forgiven. That's the good news. We can be forgiven. We can have a relationship with God, and we can spend eternity with him. Here is the truth. I know earlier we talked about the the would-haves. 
how Saul would have been king forever, but. But let's, let's remember this truth also, church. We would have been lost forever, but our king suffered and bled and died to save us from our sin. And it's that truth that we remember as we come now to the table of the Lord on this Palm Sunday, as we think about the Lord's great sacrifice that enables sinners like you and sinners like me to know God forever.